Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian Podcast. This is Dean Jones, the Well-Seasoned Librarian. This is Season 4, Episode 14. Today we're talking to Kirsten Schilling, the author of the Fragrant Kitchen Cookbook, Culinary Recipes from a Botanical Perfumer. She's the owner of Arabesque Aromas and also Arabesque Press. Arabesque Aromas is her perfume company, which she's had for quite a while and is very successful. Um, her book, Fragrant Kitchen Cookbook, is a wonderful book with a lot of really great recipes in it and a lot of information on cooking with um, herbs and spices um, in your cooking. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I had having it. She's a great guest, and I really enjoyed talking to Kirsten. hope she comes back on the show again. So without further ado, onward we are to the conversation. Welcome to the Well-Seasoned Librarian Podcast. Today, I'm very honored to have on my podcast the writer Kirsten Esme Schilling. Uh, Her book, The Fragrant Kitchen, Culinary Recipes from a Botanical Perfumer, has been out in 2014, and we want to talk about this today, among among other works. Um, Kirsten, thank you for being on the program. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Now, um, can you tell our listeners who are unfamiliar with your work briefly about yourself? Yes, I'm an art historian and a botanical perfumer, and I've always loved to write, and so it seemed only natural to combine my interests into publication. (laughs) Now, you were born in eastern Pennsylvania. How did you come to move to California? That's right. I did, and I moved here when I was about 21 or 22 years old um, to be with my childhood sweetheart, who was also from the East Coast must have been quite a culture change, uh, especially with weather and such. It was. I moved here directly from New York City, and I think it took me about three months to slow down my walk because it's just a very different case in Los Angeles. And and it was a very different way of interacting with people in Los Angeles, too, versus New York City, where you're smushed up against people all the time in restaurants and subways. So, yes, there was a lot to get used to. But I fell in love with California, and and I never left Now, you have a um, BA in art history from Loyola Marymount University, who I do a lot of work with. They're a wonderful place. Um, I love their library. Tell us about your work in art and who your influences are. Yes. I had an amazing time um, as an undergrad at Loyola Marymount, and I don't think it was until many years later that I realized how spoiled I was to have the opportunity to study there. Um, I think that's where I really kind of started to thrive and uh, fall in love with learning and education and developed a yearning for travel and came into my own creatively too. Um, I pretty much focused on the creative lives of female artists in the modern era. And I'm so glad I did because I think it's influenced everything I've ever done since. Um, their voices influenced my uh, creative nonfiction writing and the way they live their lives kind of opened me up to new horizons being from Pennsylvania on the East Coast. Um, it's, I think it left a very strong impression on me um, that's still with me today. Now, uh, you mentioned that you were following some female artists who, who influenced you, who were some of the people that whose work really stuck out for you? Um, I was very smitten with Leonor Feeney and her portraits, her self-portraits. And um, Leonora Carrington was another one. Um, 
they were maybe two of my favorites. Beatrice Wood, who I did my uh, graduating project on, um, and I was so lucky to live in Los Angeles at a time when Beatrice Wood was still living, and she agreed to an interview with me, and it was it was amazing to be able to drive out to Ojai with my little humble tape recorder and my questions and my little handshaking with the paper, you know, with my questions written on them. Uh, it was amazing to meet her. So she's always been a muse of mine and she's passed over now, but a lovely gift I received after she passed away. My partner at the time, we're no longer together, but he bought me one of her bracelets from her estate. So I still have that and I cherish that and, and my time that I got to spend with her in her home. I think that people, um, we, we often forget the importance of that, like having a conversation and talking to people we admire is such a treasure. We so rarely get to, to do it. And sometimes if we meet the people that we love, um, we choke up. I know I have many times. Um, it must be quite, you know, just wonderful to have that memory in your kind of your history, your mental history of your life. I cherish the book that she signed for me. Um, and she's another author um, and artist who was very uh, autobiographical in nature. And that too has inspired me. My cookbook is autobiographical. My perfumes often come from personal experiences, things that I love. Um, I, I love that personal voice. That's my favorite thing in both art history and in literature is, is one's personal true voice. And Beatrice Wood, I think really represented that in her writing and her art and in the way she lived her life, which I would argue is part of her art. So yes, it was wonderful. And she paid me a compliment that day that I've always, I've always cherished. She took my hands and she showed them to her assistant. And she said, doesn't she have the most creative hands? And I mean, I don't know what creative hands are exactly, but I was an artist at the time. And I just always cherished that memory of her noticing, you know, she, I guess she saw me, she saw something in me and it just, it felt so wonderful. I was, I was young then, you know, I think I was about 22 or 23. So it meant a lot. I love that. Now <laughs> you're also, in addition to this, you're also an archivist and art historian. Can you tell us about your work in these fields? Yes. Um, again, I think everything is kind of merged and conglommed all together, but um, I've noticed I've graduated from LMU with a degree in art history and I think that has always stayed with me. It's stayed with me just when I'm taking photographs, when I'm traveling. Um, museums are my food, they're my soul food. And um, even my business name, Arabesque Aromas, um, I got the name and the idea and the concept behind Arabesque Aromas while I was in a museum. I was visiting the V&A Museum in London and I was in the Islamic Decorative Arts Wing and I was reading about what an arabesque is. And my art historian's brain kind of made a connection between um, the abstract uh, botanical forms that make up arabesques and creating perfumes with botanical ingredients. And to me, I saw a similarity. And then right there on the spot in the museum, I came up with the name Arabesque Aromas. So um, I, don't, I don't any longer work as a, an art historian. I did work in an art auction house for a while and um, in cultivating my archival career, I've worked in some museums, I've worked with artifacts and such in different capacities. But I think from a day-to-day -day level, just the way I use my eye and my taste for beauty and my love of history, I think the art his history education is always with me too. 
No, I see. Be, I, I am. The minute I started talking to you, I was immediately attracted to the distilling machine behind you. I was like, oh, this looks fun. <laughs> I, so tell us about your work with uh, fragrance, with perfume and yeah. the, the distillation project process. That is just amazing. I love that. Yes, I, uh, I've wanted this little still for a really long time. It's an Italian machine made by um, Italian makers of espresso machines. And they designed this little tabletop, tabletop still called the Alemicus Gaggia, um, specifically for chefs who wanted to make small amounts of uh, distillate, maybe for desserts and that sort of thing. Oh, kind of like Aidan Farah's work uh, in Spain, his work where he does all the scents and everything. I don't know who that is, but um, it's I use it for edible purposes mainly. I can't make essential oils because the still is too small. I could if it was bigger. It holds only a small amount of plant material, so it makes about two ounces of floral water at a time that I do use to cook with or for beauty um, purposes, you know, and that sort of thing. So like a orange water, like that kind of thing, or rose water? Well, you need a lot more rose petals than I can obtain or fit into my little still because rose is such a precious and, and hard to create um, water, but I can create beautiful things. Like I have a, or I did have, I've just moved from Sacramento to Los Angeles. I had a, a really nice sized distillation garden that I planted in Sacramento, but I didn't bring it with me. So I no longer have it, but um one beautiful thing I made and have made over the years repeatedly is, is a, a lovely rose geranium um, water, which is really a very all-purpose um, herbal ingredient you can use to cook with. Um, I use it on my skin. It has a lot of purposes. It's very calming. It smells amazing. Um, so um, something like that. Like I use a lot of herbs in my machine since it is so small. You know, it's, it's the perfect size for a woman who has an apartment in LA. <laughs> yeah, true. Now you um, you were talking about you know scents and stuff and wearing scents. Do you make perfumes for yourself? I do. I make perfumes that I sell through Arabesque Aromas, and yes, I make my own perfumes, which is how most of this started. <laughs> what yes. are some of your favorite scents that you like to wear yourself? Yeah, um, probably the most controversial is patchouli. I find people either love or hate patchouli. And I've taken it upon myself over the years. I've been making perfumes and aromatics for about 20 years to try to reclaim patchouli's poor reputation. I think um, maybe a lot of people have been exposed to cheap versions of the oil and I can understand, I mean, it is harsh. Some people say it smells like bug spray, but if you have a beautiful patchouli and you know what to do with it, I, I just think you can make some stunning things with it. And I know people associate it with the seventies, the sixties and seventies, but um, it was also a really common scent um, back in a uh, hundred years earlier in the Victorian times. And um, it's one of my favorites. I used to manage an essential oil company and we would get beautiful um, dark and light patchouli from Indonesia. And wow. Yeah. It's, it's really, a, I think it's a lovely ingredient to work with. I love I patchouli. And there was a men's clone in the eighties briefly called Savoy. And mm -hmm. it, it was a, uh, a mixture of a uh, different scents, of course, but this ones that were the standouts were patchouli and tangerine. Nice. And it was such a, I loved it. And then of course they immediately stopped. I, every time I find scents I love and then immediately they, they discontinue, I feel. So I, yeah, it's, uh, I can understand it's, there's a real pain, I think in the heart when that happens, when you're really yeah. something and you can no longer. And I feel that too, as a botanical 
creator, a, a botanical perfume creator, um, I actually just made a beautiful scent called Magnolia with this um, champaka that I loved. And I just ordered more and it just, the new batch smelled completely different. And so I, I can't recreate this perfume until I find again, a champaka that's as nice as what I was using. So, um, I mean, I guess that's part of botanical perfumery is that some of these things are ephemeral. Yeah, they stay in the memory though forever. I mean, yeah. I remember scents, you know, from decades ago. I mean, it's funny what you remember. Like there are memories that take you back like Proust's Madelines that take you right back to childhood. Mm -hmm. It's funny. I mean, it, even scents that aren't pleasant can have pleasant connotations or or just take you back. Like for me, the mixture of Aquanet hairspray and cigarettes oh. takes oh, yeah. me back to my childhood like that. That's a high school girl's locker room for me. <laughs> I had a can of Aquanet in my locker room, I to say. But I grew up in the 80s. You had to have big hair. Yep. The 80s yep. And 90s. So, you know, a girl couldn't be without her Aquanet. <laughs> That's right. I, now, can you tell us about some of the scents you sell from Arabesque Aromas? Sure, yes. Um, I'm just working on my my midwinter collection and oh. I today put out a scent that I, I put out every year around this time, um, celebrating the evergre evergreen symbolism of the holidays, the holly, moss and ivy. And it's a beautiful fougere. Um, so it does have patchouli in it. And I also thought people might like it, um, especially this year, it's very calming. It has clary sage and lavender. So it's very relaxing as well as green and kind of smooth. So um, I was wearing that yesterday and I really liked it. Um, yeah, I, I try to release my scent seasonally. And so- Oh, nice, I like yes. that. Yes, yeah, I have. To, I should send you a sample so you can enjoy it. <laughs> so I like that, thank you. Yeah, I, um, I wear a lot of cedar myself and my wife always says that when I go to work, I, my smell lingers behind me and, and she says she can always smell the cedar and she associates it with me or my closet smells like wool and uh, cedar and always has that kind of effect. And it's nice that people can sometimes have kind of a scent that identifies them or, or, you know, you can kind of like, oh, that reminds me of that person. Agreed. And I love the smell of cedar. That's, that's, I like to work with cedar myself. It's really a lovely smell. Now you're a creative nonfiction writer. Can you tell us about some of your work and um, the idea of creative nonfiction? Yeah, I would love to. Um, ever since I was a very little girl, I always wanted to be a writer. And um, I think I'd lean more towards the introvert side of things. I've always kept a journal and I do love words. I love language. I love reading, but maybe even more, I love writing. And so, I didn't have the confidence, I don't think, to write for anyone but myself for a really long time. And then when I went to college and I fell in love with art histories, when I realized maybe I was actually pretty good at writing papers about my passions, you know, and, and but I, I kind of kept my creative writing um, to myself for a long time. I was kind of shy and afraid. Um, and I, I think I got maybe two or three stories published around 2012, and that was a really big deal for me. Um, I didn't really know what I was doing. You know, I just kind of published them. Someone gave me um, a link to a, a magazine that was looking for women authors. And I submitted very shyly, you know, not knowing what to expect. And they accepted me, which was great. 
Um, and then, I mean, I guess maybe because it's challenging, I put it away for a while. And then I was in a really, really serious car accident. Oh, so sorry. Yeah, yeah thank you. Um, the ER doctor said, do you know how lucky you are to be alive? And I always remember that. And since that, since that year, which was 2018, I just have really tried more to do things I want to do. I'm grateful to be here. I'm grateful I have a second chance. I'm trying to live more authentically. And so one of the things I did when I was recovering was I published this collection of short stories that I had lying around forever. Um, and they were inspired by journal entries of mine. So they come from my life. They are autobiographical, just the way I was saying I I love hearing the personal narratives of other people, whether it's through art or their writing. And so that's the style that I use when I write too. And I just summoned my courage and I published this first collection of mine. And um, I guess I had my confidence boosted a little because I sent it to some other publishers and they accepted several stories too. So that made me feel a little stronger. Um, but it was a quiet launch. I didn't do a lot of publicity because I was still recovering. It was just something I wanted to do more for myself. So I did. <laughs> and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed putting it out there. And um, I enjoyed designing the book too. And I was very careful about what font and the color of the cover. And I enjoyed all those little creative details too. And so I had a, I had a printer who was very patient and working with me and I do have the book on my website available. And um, yeah, I think I have about a hundred copies left. I just printed, it's like a fine press of just a, a limited you know, amount of copies, so. Yeah, I wanted to speak on this because I find that in my life, I know so many artists that are worried about pleasing others with their work and writers and, and uh, visual artists and actors even. And yes. they're really worried about being popular or pleasing others. and. I find in my life though, I really love the artwork and the writing of people that don't give a fuck, that just want to like write what they want to write. Yeah. And I think it's funny because we do gravitate ultimately to people that really do work that is for themselves. Like Patti Smith, uh, she's my favorite artist. I mean, I love her writing, her books. I love her her um, music. Mm -hmm. And she's she could care less what other people think. She really She really doesn't care. She does it because she wants to do it and it's from her soul. Yes. And I think the fans love that because we're like, we should be like this as well. We all want to take that risk as well. And we don't have to be loved. We don't have to have people, we could write books for ourselves. It's okay to give ourselves permission to do that. And you did that. You gave yourself permission to say, I don't give a fuck. <laughs> I'm going to write this. And if people read it, they read it. They don't, they don't. I think there's something really grounding about being in that kind of accident that I was in where suddenly so many things that were silly just no longer mattered, you know? Things like yeah. walking again and yeah, just something important I wanted to do because I was still alive, I just did it. And you're right, I think there's a real purity in that that people pick up on and agreed, yeah. I mean, I think America is plagued by the idea of taking things for granted. We have so much and we are a country that right now is at a very fragile time. And I, I think we're still in that denial where we don't really realize how tenuous this all is. I think that's true. And yeah, I think this pandemic has been very interesting. I think for a lot of us to have, if, if we accepted the downtime that we were given, I mean, some people maybe just tuned out, but um, 
I did it just to do a lot of thinking and reframing. And I did end up moving back to LA, which is something else that I've wanted to do. I, I was in Northern California for 10 years. I was away from Los Angeles and I missed it the entire time. And so it's something else I really wanted to do. And I just, I, I, I just got here about six months ago and it's just another thing. I'm, I'm trying to listen to my heart more and to just kind of live more in integrity like those women I mentioned, you know, a hundred years ago who were just so brave and lived so honestly. And I think that's important to do that. And so I'm trying, I'm trying my best. <laughs> now, what are some of the favorite things about Los Angeles that you like? Well, back to my love of museums. I, I, I left LA, I think, to go live in the country for a while. I was going through a divorce. I lost my job of seven years running the essential oil company. This was around the time of the economic downturn. And I went and I needed to go live out in nature for a while, but I got bored in a way really quickly, as much as I love nature. And I mean, look what I do. I work with botanicals. I love gardens. I love my animals, but I need to be around museums. I need culture. I missed things like going to the opera and I also missed the food culture. Um, yeah. So I am really glad to be back here for so many reasons. And I just, I don't know, I needed that kind of stimulation. And I mean, I could still be creative out in the woods where I was living. I was up in Nevada County for a while and then I was in Sacramento. I still was creative, yeah. but I just don't think it's the same thing. And no. the more I look back, I just see how much museums and being near museums and um, working with artifacts and all of that sort of thing, how, how much that inspires me. And so, and then I also thought it would feed my archival career to be back here, you know, right. that it would be some fresh opportunities. I wanted something fresh. And I also wanted to be in a new, a new city since the city I was living in, I associated with this car crash, but right. I wasn't really happy there anyway. So I think it was just time to go. <laughs> yeah, no, and it's in Los Angeles is so wonderful. I mean, there's so many great uh, museums there. Uh, it's funny that two of my favorite artists and writers, um, also were big proponents of museums and helped fund them. Vincent Price uh, gave a lot to local museums. They even have a Vincent Price Museum. And Steve Martin, who I adore, and who's a really good writer as well as actor, um, he is a huge proponent of the arts in Los Angeles. And there's just so many, my brother goes down to Los Angeles a lot. My brother's an artist and he just, you know, raves about the, the museums he gets to go to and talks. And I'm always envious. I, I always want to spend more time in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. What kind of food do you like down there? What I mean, there's so much food. There's it's just a really a hotbed of the food culture and the food industry right now. And so many big name chefs live there. Uh, what foods do you like to eat down there? It's not even anything that fancy. I just don't think I realized how fortunate I was to be surrounded by so many choices and opportunities. Oh yeah, absolutely. Until I moved away, yeah. and and that was hard for me. I just it didn't occur to me. I was thinking about so many other things. Um. I love Oaxacan food. Yeah, I, me too. I don't get tired of Oaxacan food. I love Ethiopian food. Currently, I live, I could walk to little Ethiopia and that just makes me so happy. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the Mexican food here is yeah. fine. And that's just naming a few, you know? So I'm just delighted to be here. And the idea of the choice, I think, is, is a huge factor for me. Mm, yeah, yeah. You don't really have that in Nevada County. <laughs> <laughs> No. And I mean, Sacramento, I did have some places. I mean, I made it work, but it just wasn't quite like LA. I mean, I think when I yeah. got here the first few weeks, I think every week I was ordering a different dish from my favorite Indian restaurants that I had remembered from years ago. And I just like had to, you know, 
I had to get that out of my system. I missed it so much. And Persian food, uh, one of my favorite oh, yeah. places here. So every time I would visit, I would I would kind of ask all my friends, could you meet me at my favorite Persian restaurant in Westwood? And they would. I would kind of get my fix, you know. But it's just lovely to live here again. And, to, and also, I think LA, I lived here for so long and I've had so many great things here. I feel safe here. Right. I, I just, it's, it's, it feels like home to me. And so I wanted to be back here and here I am. So I'm excited to be here. So that's, that's wonderful. I mean, Los Angeles is great. I, yeah. I, I, I always like visiting when I go there. I totally understand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the Fragrant Kitchen, Culinary yeah. Recipes from a Botanical Perfumer um, that you published in 2014 and re-released in 2018. Tell us about that book a little bit. You published that under your own imprint, Arabesque Press. Can we talk about that? Yeah, I would love to. Um, I think that was a book that I was writing in my head for about 10 years before I put it to paper. And I that I wrote that in Nevada County when I was living out in Nevada County. And I had this, uh, I had a very dear neighbor, Virginia. Regina. See, now I'm tongue-tied. <laughs> it's infectious. <laughs> my neighbor, Regina, who also is very literary and also used to live in Los Angeles. And we hit it off. And we used to have tea together a lot. And she she's the one who coined the phrase that this cookbook was like Kirsten World because she knew Kirsten World well. I would have her over a lot and I'd, you know, have some of these cookies I just made. And she knew my cooking, she knew my kitchen. And so she's the one who also called it an autobiographical cookbook, but I think she's right. You know, it, it pretty much was my own take on cooking and the way I use raw materials, dry ingredients, spices, herbs, my garden. And I was um, actually making incense one day. I was making an aromatic incense and I ran out of the ingredient that I, I needed. And I realized that I had some in my spice cupboard and I went to get it. And for me, it kind of showed me, um, I had a moment of clarity where I realized that I cook a lot like the way I make perfumery, you know, like I have a lot of things in common between the two and how interesting that I'm borrow, borrowing from one cupboard to make something else. And I mean, I think almost in all of the ingredients in that incense were actually just edible, you know, beautiful, pure ingredients. And so that purity and that simplicity between the way I cook and the way I make perfume kind of feed each other. And so that kind of helped me solidify the book and put it to paper. Now, um, how did many um, cookbook writers have a process that they work with to develop recipes and like testing recipes? What was that like for you? Mm, these are all my own recipes. They're, they were all part of my life already. I didn't include anything new that I didn't know. And um, I wrote about, I talked about it in my little YouTube uh, short about the cookbook. And I also wrote about it a little bit in the intro. But my close friends were a very big part of this cookbook. And so I had my friends testing the recipes too, or I would cook them. And then I would have friends like Regina come over and help me eat everything and, you know, kind of give it the thumbs up or no. And a very good friend, Brandy, would help. She, she probably did the most testing with me as far as increments because I'm an intuitive maker. I mean, I, I use my senses a lot. For both making perfumery and for cooking and so I did have to rein myself in a little bit so I could get the increments correctly um, and then I, I used a few um, recipes I think that were just like a part of my past that were a very big deal to me like my figgy pudding 
Um, but yeah, my friends just helped me out, but I didn't really seek anything out that was outside of what Regina calls Kirsten world. You know, it, it kind of was a picture of how I was living at the time. As far as what was in my pantry, what I was using, you know, how I was cooking and baking, what I was thinking about these ingredients. Um, I was very influenced by the slow food movement. I have been for a long time. And again, like I don't really think you can separate the artisanal making of something like botanical perfumes from an artisanal way of looking at food and the ingredients. Like I don't really think they're that separate. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. to mention when you asked me about um, the ham-handed uh, spice approach, mm -hmm. I was going to mention that I didn't, that I, I was going to mention how I felt about cooking with essential oils. Okay, go ahead. Which I don't, I'm not a, I'm not a proponent of cooking with essential oils. Um, I know I published an entire cookbook, The Fragrant Kitchen. It goes chapter by chapter with all the different aromatics that one could use. Um, in cooking, and I do not have an essential oils chapter, and this is because it's it's not a sustainable way of cooking, and it's not necessary with all the other choices that we have at hand. And it's I think in keeping with your question about the ham-handedness of you know these spice these spices these kind of dead little tins of you know five-year-old cinnamon that you get at the grocery store you know that's or not older. A, <laughs> It's not a real aromatic and nor is that almond extract you mentioned, you know, but um, on the other end of the spectrum, you know, there's a tremendous cost an environmental cost in making essential oils and these little kits that some certain corporations are selling. I won't mention any names. I mean, it's not necessary to use essential oils in your cooking. And I wouldn't call that a creative way to cook aromatically. You know, yeah. I, it, it feels like they're plundering kind of just to make money. But um, honestly, you know, I have a lot of respect for plants and plant ingredients, and I've made it my business for over 20 years. I, I've, know, I've known some, you know, really big people. I've studied with some big names in the field. I've studied with Jeannie Rose, Suzanne Caddy, who wrote the very important hydrosols book. She's my mentor and a dear friend. You know, I managed an essential oil company for seven years. And quite honestly, I personally feel too humble to take it upon myself to cook with too many oils like that they're really serious ingredients and you need to know what you're doing these are very concentrated plant essences yeah and not only it takes an environmental toll but i mean th these are very strong plant medicines you're, you're putting into your body i mean your organs are not meant to be processing plant ingredients in such large quantities either and i also feel like it's a little careless of these corporations to be putting out these essential oil cooking kits because people are not skilled and they don't know what they're doing. And I don't really think it's a great idea to ingest them. Yeah. You know, yeah. Either. I, so. Nobody really said, I mean, I'm glad you said that because nobody really says that. And I think people assume they could just use anything willy nilly and it'll be okay. 
Well, I think that goes back to what you were saying about how we're so not creative cooks here in, in the U.S. And we just kind of accept what people tell us and give us and, you know, the crappy tin of cinnamon on the shelf or here's mm-hmm. a kit from a certain company that you're supposed to use to cook with. But no, not necessarily, you know, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I think if people just think about it, you know, it's much better to just work with plants or floral waters or spices than essential oils, especially while we're really considering the environment these days and and being sustainable. What does that mean? I mean, I, I just wanted to call attention to this. I might allow myself a few drops of lavender oil in a cookie batter. My Madeleines, they're my specialty once a year, maybe. Yeah. That's, that's as far as I go. And so I did want to point out that that's not a part of my cookbook for a reason. Yeah, I'm glad you said that. And I'll definitely include that because it's, it is important. And I think people might get sick or ill or harm themselves playing with something like that, not knowing what they're doing. And that's the risk. I mean, these kids, they're just slung around and use this for this and use this for this. But I don't, that's not how our bodies work. We don't all have the same system. Yeah. And, you know, again, I feel very humble about my essential oils. I'm very careful with them. I've studied for years and I still don't feel qualified to put them in, in my mouth, you know, or yeah. <laughs> feed them to other people. So I, I, I would recommend caution and maybe a little more of a conscious approach in terms of cooking with essential oils. I think we all find out, you know, we try and do things that are new to us and we we have experiences that it may not be what we intended. Like I've tried to make beer and had it literally blow up in my face. And I <laughs> I've created uh essences or liqueurs of fruit and had them not I just, you know, you try things and you think they're gonna work out and you end up with something different than you're expecting or maybe inedible and you're like, oh, yeah. this is more of a curiosity than an edible item. <laughs> That's very true. That's the risk from being creative, but yeah. You learn every time I think you try something new, you know. I love um, going to cooking stores that have foods from around the world or foods from a specific culture because I can often um, times find, discover new things um, and new smells um, and how they affect the food. I often get bored with the complacency. I, I read so many cookbooks and so many recipes and I see vanilla, 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 and occasionally it'll be almond extract or... Right. You know, if you're lucky, rose flower water, orange essence, but it's always pretty much vanilla, 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 which is, I love vanilla. You can't, I cannot love a vanilla, but like you get, I think a little bored of the banality. Nobody really tries to do anything. Like nobody ever colors outside of the line. It's always, you know, very pretty much conservative, I think. And when I go to other, you know, stores that sell stuff from other cultures, I'm able to see stuff, even just like things that seem unusual, like I remember getting some candy from Australia. It was musk sticks and it smells very much of the, uh, almost like cologne, Wow! but it's a candy and it's loved in Australia. And it it kind of threw me for a loop and trying herbs, I think from other cultures, like I'm now growing epizote for use for Mexican food. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying, you know, growing coriander and things that I'm not normally used to using, but like using more in my cooking all the time. Do you think we kind of have a kind of a ham handedness in America where we're very conservative and just use the same things all the time or very reluctant to change? I do. I I think we absolutely are. I think people maybe are a little afraid. For me, though, I'm much like you in this way. I love going to stores and trying new things and reading what they're about. And yes. And I also, I I was really lucky to be able to be a botanical volunteer at the Huntington uh, Botanical Gardens in Pasadena. 
And I got to see a lot of spices growing there. And so for me, I mean, I, I guess it made them feel more accessible to me. I could understand them. And then later I was, when I was working at the essential oil company, we imported some really beautiful spiced oils, like clove and cinnamon and just beautiful things that I, anise, a beautiful anise oil from Australia, things like that. So for me, I already had a comfort level with them, I think, before, you know, using them in my work. For me, I think I have a comfort level with raw materials like this, but I think you're right. Not everybody does. And not everyone has that historian's curiosity that I have or that curious nose or curious palate that you were talking about. But I think it's there's such a sens a sensuous delight in in doing those kind of explorations, and yeah, I don't I don't know I I wish people would venture out a little more. It's so fun. I had a student worker that worked for me, and we were talking about asafoetida, which is used in Indian cooking a lot, and also mm -hmm. in uh, incense. And she described cooking at, uh, just basically sweating onions and <laughs> adding asafoetida and just having it as part of the meal. And I tried it and it was wonderful. And my son and I liked it. And uh, I went and told her about it and she was so surprised. She's like, usually Americans would never do that. They would just try something. And I'm like, well, why not? You know, what's lost? If I didn't like it, it you know, what's the worst that could happen, you know? But- well, uh, And I yeah. think you just put your finger on where the, the creative, the creativity is in all of this, is, is that, that experimentation, you know, and that willingness to try. Like what's the worst that can happen? It's just, yeah. I find that very exciting myself. I don't know. What I, are some I, of your favorites in cooking that you like to use that I think would surprise people, unusual things that are not unusual to you, but things that people might be surprised by? Gosh, I don't know. I'm gonna have to think about this. Okay. Um, I, I think people were just, some of my neighbors maybe were a little shocked to see me going outside every day, just picking things from my herb garden to use. I don't know. I, I had another friend who was, didn't know how to make tea, like iced tea, herbal tea. Oh, wow. This, it's so simple. <laughs> this is how you do it. She was just completely shocked. Um, I, I think it's hard for me to even gauge what is normal and what is not just because I just do my own thing just because of the education that I had working with the oils and then working in the gardens with some, you know, seasoned herbologists who taught me things I didn't know. I mean, at one point I, I had fear too. And they taught me how to not be afraid of the bees when I was weeding and working there. I was afraid at first, you know, I was younger and they taught me how to just be still and to be comfortable in the environment. And now I really enjoy, I love hearing the bees working. It's one of the most magical things. I mean, maybe sometimes we just need a teacher to show us how to do these things, but let's see, I'm still trying to think. I mean, my figgy pudding, I love to have a party every year and I love to invite a bunch of friends. I mean, clearly the pandemic has, you know, changed this, but um, I love to show people figgy pudding and it, it has very old, it has medieval origins. Puddings were, you know, that's like a medieval food in Britain. Oh yeah. And um I just love to make it from scratch and I love to share what I'm doing. Most people haven't even heard of figgy pudding here, not here. My no, I have, I'm familiar with it. Yeah. And I think if I was there, I would always say, bring us the figgy pudding, bring yeah. us the figgy pudding. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, that's a big part of my holiday. Um, I'm trying to think of what else. I haven't been such an active cook, honestly, since my car accident, I haven't had the extra energy um, for anything exotic so much. So it's been, a, it's been a little while. Um, I just love, I keep about five spices on my 
oven and I just, I love to make like a really lovely chicken, whether it's like a lavender salt chicken Ooh. or just a Moroccan spice chicken. Mm, yeah, that sounds that. wonderful. Yeah, and it's comforting and it's not too hard with like baked yams or something like that. Um, one of my favorite vegetables, I think people might find a little strange is, um, it's it's more European, I think, than it's American, uh, celery root. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I love celery root. I'm not such a fond, a fond uh, I'm not so fond of celery itself, but the root I absolutely adore with mashed with potatoes and some nice sea salt and butter. Um, it's so good. And I, I think people are put off by its look before they peel it. They're looking at it going, what the hell is this? It looks true. not an attractive looking thing, oh, but once you peel it, it's fine, you know. Agreed. Not too different than a potato, but yes, it's very ugly and a little hairy. <laughs> yeah. But it's very good. No, I love to uh, julienne it and do like a little like a mayonnaise uh, dressing on it, serve it mm -hmm. with like pork and fowl and stuff like that. I always, it's a favorite of mine. Mm -hmm. And mash, like you said, is so delicious. Yeah. I love fennel too. I like to cook with fennel. Oh, fennel's amazing. And so wild all over California. It's everywhere. It's true. I remember when I was in Nevada County, I was with my friends and I just stopped you know, and my nose, I, I smelled fennel and my friends just thought it was crazy. We were in a parking lot that kind of crested. And then there was like a, a hill going down and I just insisted and, and I wouldn't drop it. <laughs> and they were like, come on, crazy lady smelling weird things. But I insisted. And I finally looked down the hillside covered in wild fennel. I was so happy that I could trust my nose in that way. And I had no idea that it was growing wild. And so that was, that was a really neat moment for me. It's, such an un, it's so underused in America. We don't really cook with it much, but we have it everywhere. It's crazy. It's a shame too, because it's very good for your digestion. You know, for me, like it makes me feel very good when I eat it. I like it. And the same goes with some herbs. Like um, I lived on this little farm where I mentioned my friend Regina out in Penn Valley. And um, that farm was covered in Melissa, lemon ball. Yeah. It's like a, a lovely herb you could use, but I, I don't think... I think I was the only one who really did anything with it, you know, <laughs> I made iced tea and such with it, but I don't think people know what these things are that are growing. We're really embarrassed by, we have an embarrassment of foods growing around California. And I know that the Native Americans who lived here were hunter-gatherers that only spent 20 hours of their week gathering food. Wow. And they didn't have to because food was so abundant here. Even in times when I've had scarcity, I've been able to forage in the Napa Valley mm -hmm. and there was food all around me. I mean, I could live off blackberries there pretty much year round if I had to. I loved living in the Napa Valley. Sonoma was a very special place for me to live. I think that was my favorite place to live in Northern California. I got to spend a year there and that's where I bought my treasured uh, Meyer lemon and my fig tree. Oh, and nice. For many years, they actually got so big that when I moved to LA, I had to leave them behind with friends. My fig tree was larger than me at that point. It was hard to leave it, but I, I also felt like, well, I did a good job. I took care of it and I will love it and pass it on, you know, instead of traumatize it by a six hour car drive. Yeah. And that was a really verdant, wonderful place to be. I, I loved the Napa Valley. I loved all my time in the vineyards. My, I had a friend who worked at one of the oldest vineyards, um, uh, the German vineyard. Oh gosh, I'm not going to think of the name now. Gunlock Bunshu. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that was, I loved visiting that place. Yeah. There's something very special about the Napa Valley. Oh, it's beautiful. Unfortunately, they've been so affected by the fires, but they're bouncing back and they're really doing well. I'm really impressed by the people out there. 
Well, I want to ask now, uh, what's next for you? What is the next project you're working on? I think so many of us are asking what's next with this pandemic. Um, and for me, I'm I'm putting together pieces since this car accident. I think what's next for me is finishing my degree in archives. I have an internship lined up, um, hopefully pandemic permitting. Um, I should have an internship lined up working with rare books, learning nice. how to catalog rare books. And I would really love to have that experience under my belt, so to speak. And um, I'm, I'm looking for some work in my field. And then aromatically, I'm hoping to continue my YouTube um, short films. I like to tell stories about my perfumes and my creative process and why botanical perfume ingredients, or, or I'm sorry, why botanical ingredients for perfumes. So um, I'm wanting to continue that this year. I haven't written a word since the pandemic began. I, I don't know if it's just too stressful or what, but I, I'm halfway through a collection of short stories. My second collection I'd like to finish. Um, and I think that's that's all I I can see right now. I don't have, you know, <laughs> that's as far as I've gone so far. No, this the pandemic has made it hard for a lot of us to kind of make plans because you feel like you're writing it in sand, you know. So true. So true. Well, Kristen, thank you. I want to I want to tell you I really appreciate you being on the podcast. And I hope to get to ha have you on here again. You're a great guest. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. It was my pleasure. Thank you. That was author Kristen Schilling of the Fragrant Kitchen Cookbook. She also has a perfume company, Arabesque Aromas, and her own publishing house, Arabic Arabesque Press. Had a great time talking with her. Now on Friday, we're going to be having author Julia Helena Hadas on with her book, Witchcraft Cocktails. Uh, I'm looking forward to that. That was a great conversation as well. In the following week, we'll be having multiple authors coming back who are on here previously for our winter solstice author panel. Uh, we'll be advertising more about that next week. So until then, have a great week and see you on Friday and keep cooking.